Jonah chapter 1. We'll pick up reading at verse 4 and we'll read through verse 16. And we'll consider uh, those same verses uh, for our, our text this morning. There's a lot packed in this uh, these verses, so I'm going to try and hurry through it. And if I see people tapping on their watches, I'll get the point and <clears throat> try and land the plane a little faster. Well, before we read uh, Jonah 1, 4 to 16, and consider it, let's, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat> our Lord, we pray that you would come and illumine uh, your word unto our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we would be a people changed, that you would be a God glorified, and that in all things, uh, you'd receive the praise for whatever it is you accomplish in us. So, Father, do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, because we are powerless to do this in and of ourselves. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Jonah 1 at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I want us to notice just four things from the passage before us. Uh, Number one, we'll look at the Lord who sent the storm. Secondly, we'll look at the sailors from their perspective who were caught in the storm. Thirdly, the believer who caused the storm. And then finally, the Savior who stills the storm. So those four things. Uh, First, the Lord who sent the storm. If you take a a look in verse four, you'll notice that it was the Lord who hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. The word hurled 
used here actually has to, uh, is sometimes used with respect to a man throwing a javelin. It was uh, a storm the Lord threw directly at Jonah for this prophet's disobedience. His disobedience did not go unnoticed by the Lord. And so the Lord, as it were, pinpointed Jonah and said, I'm going to send a storm directly at him, aimed right toward Jonah to accomplish my purposes in this prophet's life. Psalm 107 verse 25 came to pass. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. He who sits in heaven and controls everything knew exactly what he had to do to Jonah. And so he raised up the wind. He raised up the sea because his prophet, his, his person, his believer that he sent to Nineveh is going the opposite direction. And the Lord's going to have nothing to do with it. Jonah will get to Nineveh one way or the other, whether it be through the storm and a fish vomiting him and another call to go there or the original call if Jonah had obeyed. But either way, Jonah's going to arrive in Nineveh. He's going to ask them to repent and God will accomplish his purposes. And he has all of heaven and earth at his disposal to indeed turn Jonah right around. We noticed last time Jonah's a bit silly and he is. He knows the God of the sea is in control of everything, yet he goes and hops on the sea thinking he'll escape from God. And it turns out it doesn't work at all. I want us to pause just for a moment to consider something about the Lord who threw the storm. The first thing I want us to consider is this. God will use any means, beloved, any means at his disposal to get us to repentance, to bring us to repentance and to get us to obey him, to turn us around as it were. God owns every atom, every molecule in the universe. He's in control of every weather pattern, all the wind, all the waves, all the tectonic plates underneath the earth. When we are out of line, he can bring an earthquake. He can bring a storm. He can flatten our tire and put us in the ditch and roll us over whatever he needs to do. Our Lord's in control of everything, beloved, and nothing comes to us by chance, not a thing. And in all these things, he can turn us around as it were. There's no way to escape obeying him. There's no way to escape bowing to him. We can run for a while, but he always chases us down, always comes after us like the hound of heaven, so to speak, not only to save us, but also to bring us into accordance with his will. And he does this because he loves us. If God hated Jonah, he let him go to Tarshish. Sail to the end of the world, Jonah. Got an easy trip, it looks like. Just go. But God loves Jonah, and God loves the people of Nineveh. And he's going to use this disobedient servant to call these disobedient people to repentance. But he's going to do it with a difficult means of providence because Jonah isn't going to go except after he has an arm wrestling match with God and finds out that he's going to lose. I want us to pause just briefly. Not every storm sent into our lives from God means that we are way out of the will of God and need to repent. Sometimes difficulties come. Look at the life of Job, right? He's righteous. He's making sacrifices for his kids just in case they might have sinned on the weekend. Beloved, his life turns south, boils all over. It wasn't because he was living in some rampant ungodliness, but it was to demonstrate that indeed no one's perfect and God alone is righteous and to point us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we all do well to consider when storms hit our life, difficulties, adverse providences, death, illness, sickness, you name it, whatever pink slips from work, whatever comes our way to consider, is there something way off in my walk? Is there? Is there, am I... Do I need to turn around? Where am I going wrong? Has God given me a clear word about how I need to obey him? And I really said when I heard this word, I'll wait, Lord, maybe later. Um, Too difficult, Lord. I'm not going to turn my life around that much. 
Because if that's the case, he, he will oftentimes walk right in patiently bearing with us, of course, because he remembers we're dust, but turn our lives right upside down until we finally say, I'm willing. I'll go to Nineveh. All right, here I am. Let's, let's go do your work, Lord. Sorry. It took me so long to come around. Why did God have to send this storm? Because he told Jonah once, go to Nineveh, clear word. He told Jonah had the word of the Lord. Jonah wasn't confused. The storm didn't come out of any, out of nowhere. He told Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah, to sum it up, said no. So the Lord had to send a storm because Jonah didn't obey. The Lord had to send the storm in order to turn Jonah around. Beloved, the Lord, as it were, we can garnish this from it. We can get this from the passage. God is so patient with us. He gives us his clear word. He, as it were, gives us the easy way out. If we would just obey him when we heard first, then our lives can go in a different direction and we can be used by him. A beloved, when we read the Bible, when we hear it proclaimed, when we understand what we're doing is wrong and we refuse to obey, then the Lord is forced to send storms our way and he's going to come and send them our way until finally he gets our, in other words, sometimes beloved, the Lord has to show us because hearing isn't enough. He has to do more than just tell us. He also has to show us where it is that we've gone off the beaten path. Jonah didn't finally turn around until this storm had come. He'd been swallowed by a whale, vomited on the beach. And then he said, well, I think I've seen enough now. (laughs) Now, now I guess I'll go to Nineveh. Jonah had to learn the hard way. And beloved, sometimes we have to learn the hard way, but there's also an easy way to learn. And the easy way to learn is the first time God comes and says, go to Nineveh. We just pack up our suitcases and we start walking, start heading to Nineveh. So I ask, I ask everyone here, I ask myself this too. What storms are there in our life or how many of us are actually sailing on the ship? No storm has hit yet, but we know it's coming. We see the clouds rolling and we can feel the wind picking up and we know the storm's about ready to come into our lives because we haven't repented yet and we know exactly where we need to repent. Let Let's do it. Let's take every opportunity right now to turn it around before this storm has to just devastate ourselves, our loved ones, people close to us, because it hurts. Because Jonah, at any time, my guessing could have said, hey, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. The ship needs to turn around. <laughs> I need to go to Nineveh. There's a storm coming. Let, let's go. But he was so stubborn. The storm had to persist and persist and persist until finally the only thing left to do, throw him overboard. He just won't get it. He just won't stop. Where are we out of line, beloved? Where do we need to turn around? Where do we need to repent even this very day? You know, William Ernest Hawking, he's a 20th century Harvard philosopher, wrote this, no religion is a true religion that does not make men tingle to their fingertips with a sense of infinite hazard. Beloved, that's true of Christianity. True religion to truly understand what it is God's called us into. Sort of, if we get an understanding of this, makes us tingle all the way down to our fingertips because our God is loving and faithful, but he's not, as it were, tame. He's not coming into our lives to say, I'm going to make your life comfortable the rest of the way. Our God is in passionate pursuit of this, our holiness, yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And he will stop at nothing until we yield that fruit, until we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So beloved, God is in the business of making us holy. He's not necessarily in the business of making us prosperous, comfortable, any of those things, but holy, absolutely. Into the image of Jesus Christ, absolutely. Making us obedient servants, 
servants, servants to be sure. That's what our God is doing to us. So let's be ready. Whoever said the Christian life is dull has never lived it long. Maybe they've never lived it at all, but they haven't lived it long. There's nothing dull about it. We come into an, an intimate relationship with the King of the universe. And we are so sinful needing to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He has a lot of work to do and we'll feel it. Are you feeling it in your life? Are you growing? Is God working among you? He, he should be, we should be indeed in part of this work. The second thing I'd like us to look at is the sailors. So the, the, the passage from the sailors perspective. So the sailors, we noticed this a little bit last week, they were exceedingly afraid, not just afraid, but exceedingly afraid. Verse five, the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. The captain came and said to him, you know, Jonah, wake up. We have a white squall. This is not the typical Northeastern, like, uh, like maybe in Paul's day, etc. This is a storm. They're not blaming the weather patterns. They're not saying, Hey, the Northeastern has come in here. We're sailing at the wrong time of the year. They know it's the gods coming after them. This is totally out of their world. These are professional sailors. They know something else is up than a typical weather pattern. And so they're going around praying. There's a prayer meeting as it were on deck. And Jonah's not even attending the prayer meeting. He's down there sleeping. The captain wakes him up, tells Jonah to cry out to his God. Every man's calling out to his God. It's total chaos. And then after this, they decide to cast lots. Now, if you're Jonah, you might be getting a little squeamish <laughs> because you're a prophet of the Lord. And a few hundred years earlier, you know, Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh-oh, <laughs> this may not end well. They're going to start casting lots. I know who governs the lots. I may be found out pretty soon. Sure enough, the lot falls to Jonah. They start asking him tons of questions. What do you do? Where are you from? Who's your God? Who's, what, what's your country? Who in the world are you? <laughs> because we would have had a, a, a great sailing trip. We'd have been profitable, but as you can see, our cargo's floating out there on these high waves now. We'd have a profitable sailing trip except for you. You're the problem. What's going on? And they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, but they wanted to know more. And he told them, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. My God is the God of heaven and earth. He owns land and sea. He made them. He doesn't tell them he's a prophet. That probably would have knocked their socks off. <laughs> he keeps quiet about that, but he indeed tells them exactly uh, who he is. And so the sailors were afraid that, you know, what, what do we need to do to you? Jonah said, you're going to have to throw me in. This is something phenomenal. They don't throw him in. They had every reason to throw him in. If you were on that deck in the midst of this horrible storm, you wouldn't have paused for a second. <laughs> Great. Well, let's go. Where's the, where's the nearest edge of the ship? Off we go. But they didn't, beloved. They actually went back to their, their rowing. They're going to make a bigger go of it. Maybe if we can, you know, pump our biceps up a little more and row a little harder with our legs, push this thing back to shore, we can do it. But the storm got worse. The harder they tried, the worse the storm became. So the sailors, here's something interesting. We're actually kinder than Jonah. The lost sailors were actually kinder and more heartfelt than the prophet of God, the believer. This makes Jonah look pretty bad. He doesn't care about Nineveh. He doesn't even care about the sailors. He doesn't care about his own life. And the sailors care about this guy who's brought this trouble on, th on them. Jonah is now their problem. They throw him overboard. It could get better. <laughs> but they don't want to do that probably for the sake of their own skin as their prayer later bears itself out. Don't bring upon us innocent blood, but also for the sake of Jonah. They just don't want to throw a guy overboard. It's a sad picture, beloved Jonah, the believer, the prophet thinking nothing of the non-Christians around him and the non-Christians around him thinking of him. 
Beloved, it's to our shame when this happens that non-Christians actually love better than we do. Maybe for all the wrong reasons, but but they still love. They're, They're kind. They're more moral than we are. Again, for all the wrong reasons, but they go out of the way to serve us, to help people in time of need. And we sit on our hands because we don't really like the pagans because they're the world and we don't want to taint ourselves with them. Indeed, we're not supposed to be of the world, but we're in the world. We're called to love our enemies, right? Our enemies aren't called to love us. Beloved, Jonah looks, again, he looks silly. Remember, silly dove, son of my faithfulness. God's the one who's faithful. And we look just like Jonah whenever we are not loving our neighbors well and they're outdoing us in love. Jonah, you could argue, had almost become worthless as far as advancing God's kingdom goes. Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Think about this. If Jonah's not going to witness and spread the gospel and advance God's kingdom, what use is he in this world? of this use to be thrown out. He's lost his saltiness and God is restoring him to a point where he's salty again and can indeed be useful. Beloved, if we're not going to be about the work of advancing God's kingdom, what use are we in the Lord's kingdom? That's, that's the question we all have to answer. I have to answer it. You have to answer it. If we're not going to advance God's kingdom and we're just about advancing our own kingdoms and our own comfortable life, then what use are we for the kingdom of God? Not, our use is to be thrown out because we've lost our saltiness. So again, something to consider down in the depths of our own hearts. Years ago, there was a research, researchers asked students at Princeton Theological Seminary, so young seminarians, to speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they asked them to go speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And between the building they told them and the building they asked them to speak, they placed somebody who was was moaning and groaning in pain. It was fake, but it was kind of a setup. What was interesting is many of these students, as they walked from one building to the other, thought nothing except about their own sermon, their own speech, their own eloquence. They stepped over top of this person in horrible pain to go preach about a parable that says stop (laughs) when you see people in horrible pain. And beloved, we do the same thing. We do the same thing when we have the word of God, we've heard it and we step right over those who have never heard the gospel, who are lost, who don't know Jesus Christ. How many of us are so busy like Jonah trying to live our comfortable lives away from the will of God? And we're missing everybody around us that's perishing, that's, that's in difficulty, that are going through storms. They're freaking out. And we stand still with the word of life stuck in our mouths, unable to come out. How much of the church's resources, again, before we move on, are often wasted with infighting, bickering, complaining about various things. You know how it goes, the color of the carpets, the, the red letter text or the black letter text. Who knows what, the, what translation, how many of our resources at hope are being wasted? I don't know. I just asked the question. Rather than being able to be useful in God's kingdom, encouraging one another, doing life together, worshiping God, reaching those who don't know Christ, how much of our resources are being wasted so that we can't get about that important work. And instead, we're stuck like Jonah doing nothing. You know, what's interesting is that the sailors call out to Jehovah, if you notice that. They use the word, the Lord's covenant name, Lord, all caps in your ESV, or Jehovah or Yahweh, if you have the old King James. They go from calling out to your God so that maybe a God can listen to the Lord. They're speaking about the Lord. And what's interesting is after the storm stops, 
They do what? They offer sacrifices and make vows. Now, keep in mind what's going on here. After the storm stopped, do they have any reason to make sacrifices and make vows? No, the storm's over. Chill out. Great. Lord, everything I told you I would do, I'm not going to do anymore because now there's no real urgent need. But after the storm stops, after Jonah's thrown into the sea and there's peace, they take seriously what they were talking about before. They really were crying out to the Lord. And this is their conversion story, you might say. You could argue that's exactly the case. They're doing what every good Israelite should have done, sacrifice, make vows to the Lord. These sailors are doing just that. Evidence of conversion. Beloved, this is evidence of our conversion too. Whenever the storm stops in our life, encountering difficulty, we keep serving the Lord, not just in difficulty, but also when things are peaceful. And we continue diligently year after year to serve him, regardless of his providence in our lives. I want to talk just to uh, believers uh, for a moment. We're surrounded right now by non-Christians here in this town. They're doing what the sailors are doing, and here's what the sailors were doing. They're throwing out the excess cargo in their lives, trying to make the ship of their life float. You get rid of cargo because cargo puts you lower in the water. You raise the ship out of the water so the waves can maybe go underneath the edge rather than over the edge. You try and make yourself float. That didn't work. What did they do? They started rowing harder. They're trying to physically get themselves out of the way of God's judgment, beloved. That's what the sailors were doing. Get rid of sin in your life. Try a little bit harder and add good things to your life. This is what the sailors were doing to try and save themselves. And the only thing that actually saved them was throwing the prophet overboard, incurring upon themselves judgment from his God according to their own theology. Now their God, Jonah's God, would come after them, but it was all that they knew how to do. Beloved, all around us in Pell are people doing the same thing. Maybe some of us here are doing the same thing because we are lost. But here's what they're doing. They're getting rid of sin in their life. They're trying to get rid of addictions. They're trying to make, make it so that they're a better worker, a better employee, a better parent, all, all good things in and of themselves. But they're doing it in order to try and save themselves. And then they start rowing because getting rid of the cargo wasn't enough. Now they start rowing, trying to get back to some solid ground, some stability. And they start rowing by adding things to their life. I got rid of gross sins. Now I need to start adding Bible reading, church attendance, being nice, going, making meals for my neighbor, showing up to work every day, whatever the case might be. And beloved, none of that merited the sailors any good. And it doesn't merit any non-Christian any good. They can row all day long. They'll never get to shore. The waves just get higher. In other words, they get deeper in debt the farther they go. All they do is add to their misery. And here's the one thing they have to do. You throw Christ under the bus. Christ has to enter the storm because Jonah is not just about Jonah. It's a story about a greater prophet that is to come. They've actually got to throw Jonah overboard so that they're now guilty of throwing this prophet in and it puts them in a real difficult predicament. I throw him overboard. I go off scot-free, but now I'm guilty. I'm guilty for doing this. I'm liable for Jonah and his God can do with me however he pleases. And here's the amazing thing. God did with them this. He saved them. They finally listened to the word of the Lord from the mouth of the prophet, throw me overboard. And God saved them after they did it. Beloved, if non-Christians are ever going to get to a stable place, they need to do the humble thing. And it's humbling. Throw Christ overboard for their sins. Have him drown under the wrath of God. Him satisfy the wrath of God. Him still the storm in their life. 
and they incur the judgment for him bearing the weight of their sin. But instead of God coming back saying, you're guilty, it's over. I'm finished with you. He comes back and says, well, you trusted in my son, stilling the storm for you. You stopped your rowing. You stopped throwing out the cargo. You, you found eternal life. That's exactly right. Christ has got to go overboard for us. Christ has to take the blows forth. Christ is the only one who can stop the storm, beloved. And Jonah is the portrait of that. He's the only one that can still the storm. So beloved, where we see people trying to reform their lives, you know what? Springfield is full of people trying to save themselves, filled with people, very moral town, domestic violence is almost at, at zero, almost no murders in a, a metro area of like 300,000, 400,000, for sure over 250,000. Very moral society, beloved. Tons of people trying to save themselves. And one of the worst things that we decided as a church that we can communicate to people is, hey, if you just get off your drug addiction, everything will be okay. If you just fix up your marriage life, everything will be okay. If you just show up to work on time, everything will be okay. It's just moralism. And what people, the worst thing that could happen is them is they actually get out of their addiction. They think they're a really good person and God loves them because they're not addicted to crack, heroin, pornography, alcohol, whatever the case may be. Or they may actually get their marriage life straightened out. And then they think God loves me because I've got it straightened out. Over that was the worst thing that could have happened to him. The best thing that can happen is that you just bring him Christ. You're an addict, to be sure. I'm addicted to certain things too. Maybe not as life destroying, but I'm addicted. Christ is the only way out. That's it. You need to come to know him. Indeed, we'll help you to get off heroin. We'll try and help you to stop uh, alcoholism, laziness, whatever the case might be. But that's not your real need because you can be a hard worker and die and go to hell. Or you can wrestle with laziness the rest of your life and trust in Christ and have eternal life and be with the Lord in glory. So beloved, there's people around us throwing out cargo, rowing as hard as they can. Are we going to minister Christ to them? Well, we tell them, do the humbling thing. Put yourself on the line and come and get to know Jonah's God. Throw his son overboard, as it were. Trust in Christ drowning for you under the wrath of God. Hear him when he comes and puts his head above the water and say, it's finished. After he goes under the waves on the cross and bears God's wrath in our place. Hear him say, it's finished. In other words, the sea's calm now. No more waves. And then he commits his spirit into the hands of his father for the resurrection. Point them to Christ. It is their greatest need. If you're not a Christian, go to Christ. It's your greatest need. The storm will never stop in your life until you come to Christ. If you do come to Christ, the waters can be stilled. You can have peace. The next thing I'd like us to see is the believer who caused the storm. Verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. This is, this is the turning point and really the whole story for Jonah. Beginning in chapter two, we're going to hear this great confession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We'll look at that Lord willing next week. This is the turning point for Jonah. Jonah does three things. He owned his sin. Catch that. I know it is because of me. Jonah owned his sin finally. He sympathized with the pain that he caused others. Catch that. It is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So he's understanding their condition while they're going through what they're going through. And then he accepted the consequences of his sin. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He accepted the consequences of it. I'm going to have to drown. Pick me up and throw me in. That'll fix it. Beloved, some of us today might be sitting here thinking, you know what? A storm is in my life. I don't know what to do. 
a storm might be coming for us years down the road. And when we're in the midst of the storm, we won't know what to do. And beloved, we need to do exactly what Jonah was doing. It's very simple. This is, this is a portrait as it were of repentance. The prophet's going to Tarshish. And after this, he is turning around. The whale's going to pick him up. The large ant, whatever the fish is, <laughs> going to pick him up and start carrying the other direction. This is the turning point. This is exactly the 180. And what is it? Jonah said, I own it. I've caused you pain and hurt. And now whatever the Lord has to do, I'm on board with. And here it is. What do we have to do when we're in the midst of the storm? These three things own our disobedience. Beloved, it's not true repentance if we don't own our disobedience. It's very easy for us because we're natural defense lawyers, right? If we, if we don't see it in our own hearts, we can look at our kids if we have kids. I mean, everybody is great at defending ourselves. Well, you did this. Well, not really. <laughs> we're, we're professionals at this by nature. It's very easy for us to blame somebody else. Well, I was disobedient because so-and-so did this. It started off a chain reaction. It just came to me and I got caught up in the whirlwind of it. But beloved, the real, the real issue is we sin from our hearts. We're the ones responsible for our sin. So if we're going to try and turn the ship around of our lives where we are a wreck now, we're almost ready to be shipwrecked. We've got to own our sin. We've got to say, yeah, this is mine. It's because of me. I'm, I'm the one responsible for what's going on. Secondly, we, we need to sympathize with the pain we've caused others. Jonah didn't just say, it's my fault, throw me overboard. He said, it's my fault. It's because of me that all this is happening to you guys. It's like he, he gets it. You guys, you guys are just caught up in this. Woo. You guys, you guys are at, sto- at sea in a storm and it's my fault. And you wouldn't be in the midst of this storm if I wasn't here. So it, it's kind of an apology, you might say. Beloved, this is exactly what we have to do if we're going to turn the ship around. Own where we've caused others pain or we've hurt them. Where our, our disobedience has actually hurt or destroyed the lives of other people. That's part of repentance. Hard part of it, but indeed it's part of it. And then third, accept the consequences. Accept the consequences, which might be the hardest part of all. Um, years ago, there was a, uh, a man I knew, he, uh, in Springfield, Missouri, he joined the church and had a, a difficulty with um, alcoholism and pornography. And as I got to know him, we tried to work through a lot of these things. And um, he, he would call me frequently and say, you know, I, I fell again. All, all right, you know, brother, let's, let's work. Let's pray. Let's talk. Let's, let's try and establish some accountability. Let's, let's seek the Lord. Um, his wife was very offended for obvious reasons. She knew of it. And Every time he would go through this cycle, um, he would always tell his wife he was sorry, but he would always blame something else for it. He did not acknowledge her hurt and pain, and he never accepted the consequences of a wife who was cold toward him, wasn't turned on by him for obvious reasons, and just really wanted to have nothing to do with him until he could repent. And eventually she asked him to leave and then she divorced him. And all he could do was blame her for filing for divorce. And he just couldn't come around and see uh, your wife isn't going to be turned on by you. She's not going to have much to do with you. So he could say, I'm sorry, but beloved, that's not true repentance. Anybody can utter the words, I'm sorry. It's very possible. But when we're really repentant, when, when we're cut to the heart, as was Jonah uh, evidencing, uh, we'll not only say, I'm sorry, yeah, this is my fault. But we'll also come to people and say, look, I'm sorry, I hurt you. Yeah, my, sin has social consequences, beloved. It's never just confined to us. Our sin affects people around us. It, it filters out. 
So we go to them and we say, look, I'm, I'm sorry I hurt you. That's part of repentance. That's evidence of it. And then we also accept the consequences. For him, it was, you know what? Your wife may have to see one or two or three years of no more drinking, no more pornography before she's ever going to want to come close to you. And he wouldn't accept it. He thought, and I'm sorry meant that we can now be intimate and we can be close to one another. He just would not accept the consequences. Beloved, how is it with us? How is it with me? When we sin, we cause pain. We've got to deal with the pain we've caused others. And we've also got to accept the consequences, the rebuilding of trust, the rebuilding of relationships that our sin has hurt. Finally, I'd like to look at the Savior who stilled the storm. Verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Centuries later, which the Old Testament is so beautiful, metaphor, foreshadowings, allusions, pictures, everything, all all having to do with Christ. Centuries later, there was another storm on on a different sea, and as the storm raged, we've got disciples, sailors, I mean, they're fishermen by trade, freaking out. (laughs) We've got the Lord Jesus Christ sleeping, head on a pillow, tired from all the work, but he's not being disobedient. And when the, when the disciples wake him up, he's like, well, you know, why are you such a little faith? Of course, you, you don't believe. And he stands up and says, peace be still, and the storm stops. And so Christ averts tragedy for himself. He averts tragedy for his disciples. Beloved, there came a time, though, when the storm didn't stop. And the storm of God's wrath raging against human sin, raging against the sins of all God's people, came, clouds rolled over, and there was darkness, the middle of a storm. And at that point, there was no peace be still. There was no, oh, everything's fine now, the lake is calmed. But instead, Christ threw himself all the way into the storm of God's wrath. He drowned underneath it, as it were. He drank every hard drop of it and was thrown in so that our lives could have declared about them. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, just through faith, so that we could live a peaceful life, not under God's wrath and condemnation, but under God's love in his household as an adopted child of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, beloved, God is not upset with us like a judge is upset with a criminal coming to condemn us. He loves us, but it costs Christ everything because he went under the storm. And you know all the wrath that's coming to every single non-Christian that's ever lived in hell? Multiply that just times infinity. Put it right on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the darkness, all the drowning, all the waves flooding over him, wave after wave. And he paid for it in, in three hours' time, as it were, and came up and said, it's finished. It's over. Caesar stilled. No more wrath. Beloved, that's what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. That's our real hope. He is the true Jonah. There's a big difference between Jesus and Jonah, though. Jonah was thrown overboard for his own sin. Jesus was thrown overboard for our sin. Jonah got what he deserved. Christ, he got what we deserved. And he bore the whole thing in our place. So, beloved, how do we know we're Christians? Maybe some of us are wrestling with that. How do we know that we're really believers? We know that we're believers when this takes place. We can actually throw Christ overboard as it were, rather than jump ourselves overboard or try and clean up our lives. We can look to Christ and listen to him and obey him saying, believe in me, trust in me. I can still this storm. 
Are you trusting in Christ to still the storm of your life? Are you trusting in Christ to still the storm of God's wrath that's coming on the last day? He's the only one who can plunge himself into that wrath and make it peaceful. Because if you and I jump overboard, the storm will keep raging on forever and ever and ever. So trust in Christ. Watch him go overboard for you. See him bleeding and dying at Calvary. See him undergoing God's wrath. You and I could never stand up underneath it. We would be obliterated in a moment. See the King of Kings, the mighty one, the strong one, the hero standing in your place, exhausting the wrath of God until it's all over. That's encouraging to our hearts. That's the good news. Let's, let's pray.